In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Let me start with just a couple things. One, I'm, it's great to see you guys. I was out for a conference, and then I've been out on vacation, so it's, I've missed you, and it's great to be back. The second thing is, um, we're a family. I'll just say when some things are going wrong. Apparently, the HVA system's having a little trouble today, and we are working on it, so you're not imagining that, and we know about it. We're working on it. We're doing everything they can do on it, so just letting you know that. This past week, I had a conversation with um, a friend that I've known a long time who is a woman in her late 80s, and she was telling me all the things she had to do and was all stressed up and anxious about, I got to do this and that, I'm not getting this done, and just all this, and there was this moment where I just kind of said, can we just stop for a second? Like, you're retired, like, everything's provided for you, like, life is good, like, wh- like why are we stressing about all these things that have to do? And so I kind of pushed her on it, and she basically came to a place where she said, well, I just want it to do everything right and help all these people and do these things so I'll be right with God when the time comes. And I had this moment of going, oh, how has the church failed you? To not get that you will never, ever, ever, ever earn that place with God, that it's all about grace. Where has the church missed in just emphasizing again and again, it's all about grace. None of us are ever, ever going to earn our salvation or get right with God by the stuff that we do. That flows from where we believe, but it doesn't, it's not what we do as a condition to get there. It's all about grace, top to bottom, grace. Just relax in God's grace. How do we get confidence in that? I was thinking about that this week. Like, what's the quickest way you can kind of tell somebody about that with some confidence? And I think, I like the way the Oxford scholar and Anglican bishop, N.T. Wright, talks about it. Because he says, when you start talking about faith, you start with Jesus, like that's the place you start. Like don't start talking about a God that may exist or not exist. Start with Jesus and get how he said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be tortured and beat and killed. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead and go from that place. And he said, he, and of course, if you get stuck in this place, he's, he wrote a, a volume that's about that thick on the resurrection of Jesus and the proof and the understanding of it. But he, he says, if you go look at that, how... Jesus appears to his followers. He ultimately appears to 500 people. All the evidence we have for what he did, you get to this place where you're like, yeah, that happened. Then you're like, okay, then everything he said is true and everything he did. And we go back and look at his actions and what he did. And it all, we learn his rhythms of grace after that. We get his rhythms of grace and the way he lived, the way, what he taught and all of this. And what I want to do today, I want to do two things. I'm going to come back to this. But what I want to do today is it's our final sermon in this series we've been doing on 1 John. And I want to try to wrap that up and put a little bow on it. And I want to go back and talk about a little bit about confidence that we have with God. Because that's what John does in the, in the final chapter of 1 John. So those are the two things I want to try to do today. And when we start looking at this, um, Ken did a little bit of this last week of like starting to kind of summarize it for different people. But if you look at it, a lot of great um, scholars like Raymond Brown say that when you look at John's letter and you're going to kind of look at it from the highest level you can go, there are two big movements in this letter. The first one of these is, is that God is light and that we're to walk in the light. And the second part of it is going into how we are meant to follow the God of love as his children. So they're kind of related that way. That's the first imagery is about light 
And the second one is about love. And it kind of shifts in chapter three as we go with that. And I'm going to go a little bit further as we, as we review what we've been on this. But this first part, how God is light, John paints this picture of a dualistic world where there's darkness and light. And he's saying, look, God is light. And those of you who are embrace and pursue the just, that's you. This is your journey. And as we walk in the light, that we have fellowship with God and with one another. That's where he goes with that. And then he takes a bunch of swipes. Because remember, the reason we're writing this whole letter it has to do with these people that are, that are teaching some, some false teachings and are breaking away from the church. And he takes swipes at them throughout the whole letter. That's part of, why he's, part of the reason why he's writing. I'll say more on that in a minute. But, and then he points out that this is part of this light. He talks about how the world is different. And the world, he goes into this impassioned part of talking about how the world is full of lies and will seek to get you to go into the lusts of the world and all these kinds of things drawing you to that place. And he labels and, and calls out the false teachers and contrasts them with the true Christians who are the ones who have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, have the Holy Spirit. And maybe he kind of implies that maybe that, that's all you need because with that you have God's truth in you and you have God's spirit in you testifying that you're a child of God. So that's kind of the, that, that first bit a little bit deeper. And then the second bit we get to is, again, um, turning to how God is love and calling us into this journey with God in love. And part of that is he wants all of the followers there. He's writing to Christians. He wants them to be generous and giving. He wants them to focus on God's ways and live in that place. And any part of it, he says, there's even a test that you can kind of look at the, the fruit that's being born in your life and what you're doing with that. But again, in chapter four, then he comes down to talking about this supreme place of love. And he says, God is love. And so if you've ever heard, like, I'm one of those people who will say that the Christian journey is ultimately about God's love for us and the perfect love in the Trinity and our call and journey in that. But if you want one chapter of the Bible to go look at as the place where you're going to go talk about God's love, you go look at 1 John 4, because that's where you're going to get the passages about God is love, that we love because he loved us first. And because of that, we learn to love and get called into love and all these different kinds of things. That's the chapter that you turn to with all of that. And then that leads us to the final chapter, the one that we're taking up today that you just heard. And now, you know, give yourself some applause because we've now read the entire book of 1 John. So like we didn't, I know Episcopal, you know, part of the deal with the lectionaries, we jump around, we get a little piece here, a little piece there, and we get it all. We read 1 John from chapter 1, verse 1 to the very end at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. We've done the whole thing. But we turn to chapter 5 He's bringing, he's going to continue where he's been going a little bit, and then it's going to end up with a, with a conclusion um, part of it. And I'll say, I'm going to, what I want to do with this is I'm going to continue to summarize chapter five, and then I'm going to circle back and get some of it in a little more detail for something for us to think about during the coming week. He starts out with this thing and in, in looking at it and talking and sort of connecting um, faith and the commandments and, and love all these things together with, with where he goes with it. Um, he says that, let me get back to my notes here. He, he connects faith, love, and the commandments all together. And he points out that how when you are in Christ, you are a conqueror, that you're going to have a victory. 
And part of what the imagery he has here, of course, with victory is whether you're in court or whether you're in a debate or whether you're in a sports competition, there's, there's always an opponent. So part of the imagery he's bringing up is that there's an opponent and that we have a victory over that. And that victory comes in faith in Christ. That's part of what it does. And then there's some, we don't have time to go into all these kind of details in the summary, but he talks about the importance of Christ's blood as part of salvation. And part of what they, the scholars say on that is, well, he's pushing back against what some of these people that are, that are te- doing these false teachings are trying to say that all that maybe matters was Jesus at his baptism and not the cross and the blood and all the sacrifice and all the, these other bits. And then he comes to a place where he's all about accepting the divine testimony that through that we'll get who God is and we'll have this, this place with God. All of that's sort of the, the main material. The final bit of chapter 5 is a conclusion. And as I said before, I'm going to keep summarizing it, but I'm going to come back to part of it. Part of what he does at that final conclusion of chapter 5 is he tells you why he's writing the letter. He did the same thing, if you remember, in John's Gospel. Because you get to the final chapter of John's Gospel, and he says in that, I'm writing all of this so that people may believe. And in this case, he's getting to this final part, and he's, he knows he's writing to people that already believe. But he's saying now, I'm writing so that you will know that you have eternal life. And when he talks about eternal life, and you get into the Greek, I'm no Greek scholar, but I've read what the scholars write. The word he's using here is not that you're just going to live forever. Like there's a lot of us that might get into a place in life where we don't want just to have that life continue on forever. We want something different. And that's what this actually is. It's really something that's saying we're coming into God's life. We're coming into his reality. That we're coming to a place of serenity and peace and defeat of sin and defeat of death. And all the, it's just something better than we can imagine that we're being called into to have forever. Where, where death is defeated. And John wants to say again and again that this is happening because of Jesus Christ. He's calling us back to that place and our belief and submission to Jesus in that place. And the Greek scholars are quick to point out that this part of what he's saying here is in the present tense because he wants, to, it's not off in the future somewhere, it's the now. That we can have this fellowship and a sense with him now. All of this leads to ultimately to having a boldness and a confidence in who God is, what he's doing, and how we interact with him. And it leads us to confidence to do lots of different things and how we live and how we face the things that we come upon us in life. Part of it is, again, he's, the backdrop of the whole letter is this conflict. So he goes on from there to say we ought to have boldness. Part of this boldness ought to lead us to pray to prayer for all the sinners, the people who have been led astray, that are off the mark, pray for them. And then he says, but he kind of actually puts out there, well, there's an exception. The people who are teaching these false teaching and are apostasy are maybe in a place where they're so cold and calloused and willfully going against God that maybe they're beyond the reach of prayer. But everybody else, he's saying, pray, it's going to be heard and it'll be effective. And then he finally gets to these we know statements, which I'm going to circle back to in a minute. But he's saying, we know the reality of God. We know the God that we choose. We know all these different things. He concludes by, by really getting to a place of pointing out the divinity of Christ 
And then the final verse is like from left field, verse 21. I don't know if you heard it when it was being read, but he says, little children, you know, don't go after these idols. And you're like, we haven't even talked to idols in the whole letter. Like, where did that come from? And there are a number of scholars who think, well, there was a whole other part of the letter that we didn't get. They got cut off, and that was like the first line. But there are other people like Raymond Brown that said, that, who say, no, that's a final, like a final little poke saying, don't go after the false teaching of these people that we've been dealing with, because that in itself is an idol. And that's the final word he wants on their minds as he ends it. That is a whirlwind summary of the whole letter and of chapter five. And all I want to do with the time that we have left is come back to three verses, really, that are in the final part of chapter five in the conclusion part that start at, that are 18, 19, and 20, where he does these we know statements. And look at those. And the first one of these that he talks about is that we know basically that we're not under the realm of sin, that we're emancipated from this place of sin. And we have to be super careful in looking at this passage because he says that, that basically Christians don't sin. And I don't know if you're like, you got distracted by that at the moment that was read because it's like, what? Because we know Christians sin. I certainly know I sin. And as a, my annual reminder, don't put me on a pedestal because I'm just like you. We all sin. Everybody sins. Everybody will disappoint you. Everybody's going to get stuff wrong. There is nobody on the planet who's ever lived except for Jesus who is sinless and who doesn't get stuff wrong. So we know it's not that. And what we look at it, what it really probably means is we're not slaves to sin. We're not locked in with shackles to where we're always going to be submissive and under sin in this way. And people look at it in different kinds of ways. William Barclay talks about how at the time, the pagan culture, when this was written, they had no concept like this. They thought they were aware of some of these things, but they, they didn't see any way out of it or anything like that. And he's talking about how that is all broken, that a Christian will never sin and say, I'm defeated. That's just it. I'm done. Because there's always this life that comes through Christ. Or others will say, looking at this passage, that what it means is Christians are never going to be in a, locked into a habit of sinning all the time. Like there's this one sin that's just habit, habit that never leaves. Or some people say, well, what, what John is really saying is that we're not gonna, we don't engage in mortal sin. We don't, we don't ever get to an affirmative place where knowingly, willingly, constantly we're telling God, no, I don't want anything to do with you. It's all of that kind of stuff. But there's this freedom that Christ brings of being outside of the power completely of sin. And um, I'm looking at my watch to see if I have time to tell this one story. I don't know if you have read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, um, but it's a story where C.S. Lewis talks about this bus ride that's taking place through heaven that's loaded with all these people on the way to hell, and they make stops, and they're able to get out and explore and do different things. In the course of that book, he talks about this one ghost, one of the people on the, on the bus, who has the red lizard on his shoulder. If you've, if you've read the book, and I'm going to read just part of the dialogue that takes place with this. Um, this guy gets off the bus, and a mighty angel approached the man and asked, would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look out, you're, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. 
don't you want it killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm, I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. The angel persists. May I kill it? Honestly, I, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day, says the angel. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so, said the angel. Why? You're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. And suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever, and I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost? You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may blast you. Go on, can't you? Get over it, bellowed the ghost. But in the end, whimpering, God help me, God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I've never heard. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and flung and broken back on the turf. And then I saw unmistakably solid, but growing ever more solider, the ghost materialized into a man, not much smaller than an angel. At that same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. As it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I'd ever seen. Silvery white, but with a mane and a tail of gold. The man, now free from his torment, climbed up on the stallion that had been his sin, and he rode into the glowing sunrise towards the Savior. This idea that C.S. Lewis wants to get of not only being freed from the sin, but God being glorified through it is this whole notion that's going on with it. That's the first, the first bit on this. The, the second part of this is he says we know that we are gods and that we are against evil. That we know that we're gods and we're against evil. He said, our whole being is because of God, even as we live in a world that is under so much power of the evil one. And, you know, it's interesting. Again, William Barclay, the commentator, says at the time that this is written, Pagan society knew nothing outside of their nuclear families, really, of people who would love and serve and have mercy. 2,000 years of Christianity, I think, have changed that in our society at large. But he's saying that's not the way that it was then, that people had this evil. And I wonder, in all of this, if he doesn't mention the place of evil in this letter, because he wants us to understand that here, we're never going to find the perfect thing. We're never going to find the place of complete and utter bliss here because there's evil everywhere on this planet. And I, for me, I'm a big U2 fan. Some of y'all know it. But I think when Bono and U2 sing that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's what he's about, that he's, he's about saying, look, I've been everywhere, done all these things, high, low, wherever we go. I still haven't found that perfection because it's not here. Because we live in this world where the evil one still has his power. He's defeated, but he still has power. And so we live in that place. 
The final uh, we know statement that John gives is he wants to build up his people at the end of the letter with confidence is to say that we know what it is to engage and be part of the reality of God. And I want to read um, the passage where he says that. It's in verse 20. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It is this uh, entering into a reality of God, of knowing God. John wants to end this letter by putting Christian hope front and center. And he wants us to get that it's not about being right, like there's right and wrong that way. It's about being in the reality of God. It's about being in this fellowship and this engagement with God and how we live. Those are the three things that he says that I think are meant to leave us with a strong sense of confidence in, in how we live. And certainly to the people he's writing to, they're in this broken church that's fighting. They did this back then too. Um, the first century or second century, but the, uh, but this idea that we're not slaves to sin, that we know that we're God's children and that we're against evil. And we realign and recommit to that all the time. And that we live in the reality in this different sphere, whatever it is of being connected with God. And I want to summarize these three, getting you to think about them one more time by reading to you those v three verses together as translated by Eugene Peterson in the message. He always has a different take on it, right? So I'm going to ask Jay if she'll put this up on the screen and let me just read how he translated these verses. He says, We know that none of the God-born makes a practice of sin, fatal sin. The God-born are also the God-protected. The evil one cannot lay a hand on them. We know that we are held firm by God. It's only the people of the world who continue in the grip of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God came so we could recognize and understand the truth of God. What a gift. And we are living in the truth itself, in God's Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both true God and real life. This whole aspect of what he's doing here in this confidence is part of his repair work for the church that's taken on these hurts from these bad, the wrong teachings and the things that are going on with it. And he wants to repair the people there. He wants them to have confidence in God. He wants them to have confidence in what they're doing. He wants them to empathetically hear and listen to all the different people. And I think for us, it's a reminder that we're to keep our eyes on Christ because again, ultimately the church is gonna let you down. Just if you didn't know that already, it will let you down. We keep our eyes on Christ because he's the one who won't. He's the one who will restore us and strengthen us and bring us help. And whenever churches get into these little fights and different things, that's when we need to know it more than ever. I hope that this journey through 1 John has been helpful for you and has given you some things to, to think about. Um, next summer, we'll return with some book that we're going to go all the way through, the same as we did this summer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you love us and you call us on a journey to walk in the light. And you are the light. We thank you that you are the one who loves us perfectly. You are love and you will never let us down in that department. Help us to walk as your children and share that love in the world. Help us receive it. Help us to know it. Help us to celebrate your grace and your love and share it in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.